0: We have been looking at what we've been calling the essentials, uh, the kind of the essentials of our faith, the things that we need to believe in and things that we have to hold firm to. We've talked about the gospel. Uh, we've talked about how the church works. Um, these are the things, those were the things that are important, the things that we cling to, the things that we hold to, the things that we, we can't sway to the left or to the right on, that we have to stand firm on. For the next four to five weeks, we're going to be looking at some different things, though, that are theological ideas, uh, theological truths that we can have opinions on, but if we have differing opinions, it's okay. These are not necessarily essentials. These are not uh, primary theological beliefs. These are more those secondary issues where we can uh, disagree that there is room to have views on both sides. Uh, And both sides you can argue, can be validated by Scripture depending on how you look at it. It's the stuff that has been argued about or discussed for hundreds of thousands of years. And so it's stuff that we can... We can disagree, but we can still love each other in Christ. So these are, these are some of those uh, stances that we can take, uh, that we can have disagreement on, but we can still love each other. Because this does not impact uh, our faith when it comes to who God is, who Jesus is, what God has done for us. So tonight, what we're looking at are the miracle gifts. Now, these are the uh, spiritual gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-11. through 11. Uh, And the idea here, the question is, are these still in effect today? Uh, mainly focusing on tongues and healings. This is really where, uh, when we talk about these things, that's really kind of where the focus stands. Uh, does the gift of tongues still exist today? Does the gift of... Healing, where you would have someone go and laying hands on other people to heal them in that moment. Do those things still, are they practiced today? Or not are they practiced, but are those gifts still given by God today? And so there's two different perspectives. There's two different views. There's two different sides. You've got cessationist and you've got continuationist. So let's kind of define our terms. What is a cessationist or what is cessationism? Cessationism is the view that the miracle gifts of tongues and healings have ceased. While God can still and and does perform miracles, uh, while God can and still does perform miracles, this is not the normative way that God works. So a cessationist would say, um, basically, that the gifts of healing, that the gifts of tongues are no longer valid gifts. A cessationist would say, um, those have ended with the apostles. Now, this is not to say that God cannot still do miracles. This is not to say that God cannot still heal. This is not to say that sometimes God still might use these, depending on the context, depending on the setting, and depending on what God wants to do. What this says is that this is not the normal way that God works. By and large, these gifts are not in practice anymore. It also uh, carries forth the idea that when God does heal, when God does do these miraculous things, uh, He does them on His own without as much using uh, a human intermediary. So in the Bible when we see the tongues or in the Bible when we see someone being healed, it's usually uh, like in the New Testament. Someone reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak or uh, people get in Peter's shadow and they are, they are instantly healed. Now we would see God heal, God work not necessarily through a specific person or through touch or through physical contact or through a gift, but God would just do what God does uh, miraculously in and of himself. So that's cessationism. Continuationism. Uh, Continuationism is the belief that all the spiritual gifts, including healings, tongues, and miracles, are still in operation today, just as they were in the days of the early church. So continuationists would say, look, This is what uh, Peter and Paul and uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and all these guys, God used them in this way, and we still think that those gifts are continuing today. That's why they're called continuationists, because they believe the apostolic gifts continue to this day. So before we really get into that, let's just kind of briefly look at spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts and what is their purpose? Spiritual gifts are the giftings that God has given to all believers for them to serve God uh, and to build His church. So God gives spiritual gifts and God to every single believer. So everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is given to us as that seal, we are uh, given spiritual gifts. Now, in your notes, we have two different sections and this is kind of the main section where they're listed in Scripture. The passage in Romans 12, 4-8 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So in your body you've got an eye and an ear, and they function differently, but they both still have a purpose. So we, verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or encourages in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see some of the more uh, miraculous gifts listed. Uh, It says in verse 7 through 11, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. That would be like discernment, being able to understand, uh, have a sense of understanding. Verse 9, uh, To another, faith uh, by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, uh, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So that's kind of where we see the gifts of the Spirit laid out. So the reality is every Christian has a spiritual gift. If you're a child of God, if you've been saved, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you have a spiritual gift that God wants you to use. Why does God want us to use our spiritual gifts? We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-7, through that the purpose of spiritual gifts are to build up the church. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them to everyone. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The reason why we are given spiritual gifts are to build up the church. We are given the spiritual gifts. God gives us spiritual gifts so that we, in turn, can serve other people. If God has gifted you in teaching, then God wants you to find a way to plug into the church so that you can teach, so that you can build up the church. If God has gifted you with service, then God wants you to be in a spot where you can serve, whether it's, um, whether it's serving in the kitchen, whether it's helping clean up, whether it's, whatever that is. God wants you to serve in a way that's going to edify and build up the church. So when God gives us spiritual gifts, he gives them to us for the purpose of building up the church. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. So, so with yourself, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And he gave to the apostles, the prophets, and, or, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. "...to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So the reason why God gives uh, gifting is so that we can build up the church, so that we can serve each other, so we can work together as that body. Though we're different parts, we work together as one body uh, to build up the church, to encourage one another, to see each one another grow in our faith. So that's kind of a very brief uh, look at the spiritual gifts. So the question that we're going to be dealing with tonight is, do the miracle gifts still exist today? So, let me just say this. I am a cessationist. I believe that the miracle gifts uh, stopped with the apostles. uh, And I'm going to make an argument for that and show you from the Bible why I believe that. Uh, But then what we'll do is we'll look at... What we'll look at is... Um, basically, when you have any uh, diverging uh, views, you have a danger of people taking those too far, one way or the other. So what we'll do is we'll, I'll argue the case of cessationism, and then we'll look at kind of the dangers of both cessationist and continuationist if you take things a little bit too far. So first, let's look at the purpose of miracles, the biblical purpose of miracles. Biblically, the purpose of miracles is to authenticate a message and its messenger. Now, I know we talk about people look at the Bible and and miracles is one of the first things that comes to everyone's mind. But there are just a handful of times when miracles happen in clusters. When it's not just some random working of God. We have the time of Moses when uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And we see the... Uh, the, the staff turned to a snake. And we see the, uh, the, the ten plagues with the water and the, turned to blood and the, and the frogs and locusts and the flies and everything else. And we see God use Moses in this very spectacular, this very awesome way. He, he raises up his hands and the, the seas split while they're going into the promised land. Uh, while he stands with his arms raised, there's one battle. They win. Whenever his arms fall down, they begin to lose. We see the sun stand still for a day. So we see all these miracles happen during the lifespan of Moses. And so as Moses was taking this message to Pharaoh saying, let my people go, or God says, let my people go, so that he had authority backing him god gave him the ability to do these miracles because it validated his message and not only to pharaoh but also to the israelites here you've got this guy who used to be part of pharaoh's house who killed an egyptian who ran away and now he's coming back saying hey look god sent me to bring freedom if you want the israelites on your side you've got to back up that message you've got to validate that message that it is from god so god gave him the ability to perform these miracles or god perform these miracles through him because it validated the message. Another time we see a lot of uh, miracles happening is with Elijah. Elijah took his message to King Ahab. Elijah took his message to King Ahab saying, look, you need to repent. You need to confess of your sin. You're leading the Israelites far away from God. Uh, And so God gave him the ability to do those miracles. Uh, The The predominant one that sticks out with him is that it did not rain for seven years or or three years, Um, and uh, then it rained, and God kind of did that miracle on Mount Carmel when uh, the fire came down and and ate up the the offering, and then the, the rains started. We see with Jesus. Jesus came as the Messiah. Jesus came to bring a message, a new message, saying that salvation was found through Him, that He was the Messiah. And so we talked about this some this morning, that when God, when Jesus performed miracles, it was to validate His message. In fact, in the book of John, when it talks about the signs that Jesus does that literally translate attesting signs or attesting miracles, signs and miracles that are proving a point, Jesus just came and said, hey, here I am. I'm the Christ. and the Messiah. I'm God in the flesh. And he wasn't backing that up by anything. The people would think, okay, this guy's off his rocker a little bit. But when he says that, and then he's making storms cease, and he's raising people from the dead, and he's feeding 5,000 and 4,000 people, then it validates and it gives authority and authentication to his message. And then we see it with the apostles. The apostles are starting the church. They are building the church. They are taking the message of the gospel out to the world around them. They are taking a new message out to the world around them, saying, hey, whatever gods it is that you believe in, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus Christ, who was God, who came down the earth to live as a man, who died on the cross for our sins so that we might have life. And as they gave this message, so this message would have authenticity, and so the church could be built on this solid truth, God gave them the ability to perform miracles. Now what we're going to see is, as we look at this, is God blessed the apostles with the opportunity or with the ability to perform miracles, or He blessed them uh, by using them to perform miracles. but it was not common practice during that time. It was mainly the apostles that God used to perform miracles. It was not the normal way that God operated even in that time. And so in regards to the apostles, what we call the apostolic age is continuationists believe that the apostolic age is still continuing today. So the gifts that happened that that Paul could perform and that Peter could perform and uh, these miracles that they saw happening that we read about in the book of Acts, a continuationist believe that that age, that apostolic age, never stopped. It never ended. And so it continues today. So those gifts are still available today. So... Here's reasons why I believe the apostolic age ended with the apostles and why uh, those uh, miracles ended with the apostles as well. First, the apostles had a very specific purpose of laying the foundation for the church. Once it was laid, it did not need to be laid again. Now, remember, God took the apostles 11 plus Matthias taking Judas' spot. And then uh, what we've seen in the book of Galatians is uh, God then took Paul or uh, yeah, Paul, and set him up as an apostle. These were men who were taught by Jesus. These were men who saw Jesus' work. And he, Jesus used them and said, this is what I'm going to, how I'm going to establish my church. The church will be built on the declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The church is built on the truth of the gospel. But the church was spread by these men initially. And as these men are going out as the apostles of Jesus Christ, as these men are going out taking the gospel, and they're going to new regions, and they're going to new areas, and even when they're in Israel, where um, Christianity was birthed from the promises given to Israel through the Old Testament, once again, these miracles validated the things that they were saying. These miracles gave proof to the things that they were saying. As they were going out saying, Here, trust in Jesus for salvation. There was something to back up what they were saying. There was something to give proof to what they were saying. And once again, if you read through the book of Acts, if you read through those stories, uh, predominantly, except for maybe one or two cases, the people performing the miracles were the apostles. Now remember, on the, on, when, the Pente- when Pentecost came... There were, I believe, Acts chapter 2 says 3,000 added to the church that day. As they continued to go out and preach, thousands and hundreds of people are being added to the church. Churches are growing and getting bigger. People are being reached. And yet, we typically only see the apostles performing miracles. It was not the common uh, normative way that God worked, even back then, for everyone to be out performing miracles. It was predominantly with the apostles. So they had a very specific purpose. And so they were given the ability to perform these miracles because they were building the foundation of the church or laying the foundation of the church. Secondly, the New Testament had not yet been written. In fact, it was in the process of being written. So the message had to be authenticated. So as Paul is writing his letters, as Peter is writing his letters, as Luke is writing Acts and his gospel, as Matthew and Mark are writing their gospels, and John John writing Revelation... Once again, for this to be seen as God's Word, the author had to be authenticated. Now, we understand that 1 Peter tells us that ultimately God is the author of the Bible as He wrote or inspired through men uh, and wrote His Word. So we know that the Word of God is God's Word written down by men. But as these letters are being passed around, uh, they had to be authenticated by God's Word. And... Once again, they had the Old Testament, but the New Testament was still being written. So as Paul came into a city or as Paul sent a letter, they're sitting there saying, okay, this is Paul who, who healed that, uh, that kid or, or who saw that person raised from the dead. This is Peter. People used to fall under his shadow and would be healed from diseases, it would be healed from sickness. In fact, if you look in 2 Corinthians 12.12, it says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The fact that the letters of the New Testament were written by these men who followed Jesus, these men who were called to be apostles, these men who, who trusted God and followed God or were partnered up with an apostle like Luke and Mark, they were called for a very specific purpose, and they were validated in their apostleship for a very specific purpose. Third, one of the qualifications of an apostle... Uh, well, let me, let me say this too. I passed over this. Since we have God's Word, since we have the Bible, we have the completed uh, Word that God has given us, we don't need this to be validated anymore. It's not still being written. It is written, it is done, it is not being added to. Jesus said, if anyone adds to this, they're going to be accursed. The Bible is the Bible. There are no new messages from God. What God has spoken, what God has said is what we have. And so there's no need for authenticating miracles anymore. There's just no no necessity for it. So if we look at the biblical pattern that miracles are for authenticating the message and the Word of God and to authenticate the messenger of God... We've already got God's message, so it no longer needs to be authenticated. We've had it since, uh, we looked at this a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning, a couple hundred years, uh, well, really within a hundred years after the Bible was written, we had the first evidences of God's Word, and it was finalized within 300 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. We have the Bible. We have God's Word. God does not need to use me in performing miracles to validate His Word anymore because He has given it. We have it completed. So that's one reason. another reason why uh, it was being written, but now it is done. And third, one of the qualifications of an apostle was one who had an eyewitness of Jesus. So Acts chapter one, verses 21 through 22, is they're seeing who's going to take Matthias or take Judas's spot, and they, they ultimately settle Matthias. So in verse 21 and 22. So one of them, uh, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taking up, one of these men, excuse me, must become with, uh, must become with us a witness to his. Resurrection. So as they were looking for an apostle, a disciple, to fill the spot of Judas, they had to have someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus, who had been taught by Jesus, who had seen Jesus work, who had seen Jesus perform miracles, who had heard the things that Jesus taught, and who had seen Jesus post-resurrection. That was the biblical uh, qualification as they looked for someone to take that spot as an apostle, to take that spot as a disciple. That's one of the qualifications that they had to meet. And in fact, on Wednesday night, if we've been going through the book of Galatians, we've seen in Galatians chapter 1 that Paul spent that whole chapter arguing why he was an apostle, why his message was validated, because he was an apostle chosen by God. And he even talked about how he had spent three years after his salvation, before he even met the other disciples, before he met the other apostles, being taught by Jesus Christ himself in that very supernatural way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that he in turn match that qualification of a uh, disciple or of an apostle, that he saw Jesus, um, had had been taught by Jesus, and he saw Jesus post-resurrection when he saw Him on the road to Damascus. Now, the apostolic time had to end when the apostles died, Because no one anymore sees Jesus face to face. We won't see Him until we get to heaven. No one can be taught face to face by Jesus the way the apostles were. So the apostolic age ended. I do not believe it's continued. I believe it ended when the apostles died. Because being an apostle is a very specific call, limited to really 13 men. The 11 apostles plus Matthias plus um, Paul. So, what we see is for the qualifications of an apostle, they had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus. So, the apostolic age, I do not believe, continues. I believe it stopped once the apostles stopped, once the apostles died. And with them, those authenticating miracles, because now we have God's Word, so those miracles are not needed to be authenticated. And then let me just say this I didn't write this in your note, but if you were to go back and read early church history, you were to go back and read the early uh, church fathers and their sermons and their writings, these are the guys that some of them were even mentored by John the... not John the Baptist, but by John, uh, one of the disciples. These are men who started writing 100 years, 200 years, uh, 50 years after uh, Jesus was ascended into heaven. These are men who have been taught by the disciples and it traveled on and on and on. They don't write about tongues. They don't write about miracles. That the time of miracles had ceased. That it did not continue into the early church. But there, it had stopped because the disciples or the apostles had all died. So that apostolic age ended. And with it, the miracle gifts. So, a lot of times when we talk about this, we want to talk about tongues. Or that's kind of where the, the focus goes. So let's spend a second to talk about the tongue, tongues and see what the Bible says about that. First, in the New Testament, tongues are introduced in Acts at Pentecost as a missional tool for foreigners to understand the truth of the gospel. Look there in their notes at Acts chapter 2 verses 4 through 11. It says, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, tongues there literally translates to languages. That's what it means. It means other languages. It does not mean... Um, Ecstatic utterances, it does not mean uh, just blurting out anything. Is it specific other foreign languages. Verse five. Now there were some dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this time, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these uh, speaking Galileans? And how is it that, that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, uh, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. So here's what happened. Jesus Christ ascends into heaven. The, 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 the apostles are, are sitting in that upper room waiting for what happens next. There is a large gathering of Jews in Jerusalem at this time because it's one of the feasts. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down. So you've got this huge crowd of people that are, are Jews and some Jewish converts that don't all speak uh, Israeli. They don't all speak uh, the, the Hebrew. They don't all speak the, the language that they would have been speaking naturally. And so, uh, as God sets down in this very powerful way, we we hear the story about the wind blowing in and the the tongues of fire settling down on them. As they begin to preach, everybody is hearing them preach or speak in their own language. So the idea here is, as Peter's up there preaching, and he is preaching in uh, Hebrew, or uh, I guess Hebrew, not Israeli. That's not really a language. But as he's preaching in Hebrew, everyone is hearing in their own language. Once again, verse 6, And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It can be argued that this miracle was not from the mouth of Peter, but it was really in how people were hearing. That the miracle was not in the things being said, but the miracle was in uh, how God worked it so that everybody heard in their own language, no matter what language Peter and the apostles were speaking. So this first introduction of tongues was not some... um, Just random speech. And it was not just people just kind of standing up at random saying things. This first introduction of tongues was a tool so that people could hear the gospel. This first introduction of tongues that we see in the New Testament was so that people who would not normally be able to understand the gospel could, in fact, understand the gospel. It was a tool for missions. It was a tool for evangelism. It was a tool that God used so that people could hear the gospel who would not normally understand what Peter was saying so that the gospel could spread. All right, next we see in 1 Corinthians 14 that 1 Corinthians says that the tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not believers. Here's why I want to point this out. Remember, one of the things we looked at as we started this was that the spiritual gifts are for the church. The spiritual gifts are for building up other believers. Spiritual gifts are encouraging us to walk and grow in our faith. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 21-22. In the law, it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22 Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. The gift of tongues in this early part of the church, as the church was just starting, was a sign that when this foreigner came into your land and they did not know your language and they began to talk and they began to speak and you could hear what they were saying in your own language, once again, it was validation of the message of God. It gave proof and authority to the one speaking that what they were hearing, that there was something awesome, something powerful, something majestic behind it, that there was... Something behind it, some power working behind them that therefore validated their message so that people could turn their faith towards Christ and be saved. Next, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that 1 Corinthians says that prophecy is the greater gift to be desired over tongues. Look at verse 1 through 3. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mystery in the Spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for the building and encouragement and consolation. The Bible says that the, the reason we have... or Let me just say this. Prophecy, what he's speaking of here, is not uh, telling the future. A lot of times we think of prophecy, we think of someone telling you what's going to happen in the future. Prophecy means to proclaim truth. So in the Old Testament, when they proclaimed truth, the prophets, God would give them a message and they would go tell the people. Now sometimes that dealt with, hey, look, if you keep sinning, this is is what God's going to do. And so it was, hey, here's what's going to happen in the future. But the heart behind it and the truth behind it was, it was a proclamation of truth. It was was proclaiming and telling truth. So when we talk about prophecy in the New Testament, it is not someone who gets up and says, hey, look, this is what's going to happen. This is when the rapture is going to happen or this is when this is going to happen. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is when we proclaim truth, when we proclaim the word of God, whether it's teaching it in a Sunday school class, whether it's preaching it on Sunday morning, whether it's the songs that we all sing together as we sing truth, that is prophecy, proclaiming truth. So he says that it is better to proclaim truth or to desire the spiritual gift, the prophecy of of being able to tell forth truth rather than tongues. It is a superior gift. It is a gift to be desired over tongues because prophecy builds up the church. Prophecy lifts people up. Prophecy uh, helps people grow in their faith. Proclaiming truth is what helps us mature in our faith. And what we've seen, the purpose of gifts, is to help the church grow. Now, not only that, but also uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses uh, 23 to 25, listen to this. Paul's talking about church services. The church of Corinth was really messed up. There was chaos in their services. And so he says this in verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and they all speak in tongues, but they're all speaking different languages, they're all speaking, there's no consistency, there's no cohesiveness, and there's no um, uh, interpreter. If the whole church is speaking in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, you have visitors come to church, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Will they not say you're all crazy? Verse 24. But if all prophesy, if as a church we are standing on truth, if as a church we are accepting truth, as out of church we are proclaiming truth through the things that we sing, through the reading of Scripture, through the preaching of Scripture, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, a visitor comes in, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So what's going to impact the life of, the, uh, of a visitor? What's going to impact the life of a lost person? It's when they come to a church that is proclaiming truth. It's when they come to a church that is standing on truth, that is praying truth, that is preaching truth, that is teaching truth, that is singing truth, that stands on the Word of God as valid and true and real. What impacts the loss is not signs and not miracles. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees this morning in that passage we looked at in Mark, look, your signs and your wonders that you want, you're not going to get them because you're missing out on what is really true. You're missing out on what is there. You're missing out on what God has already showed. God speaks through His Word. This is the primary way God speaks. It says the primary way God speaks to us is through His Word. And so it's through His Word that God speaks. It's through His Word that God convicts. It's through His Word that God saves. That's what God moves through is His Word. It's how God speaks to us. So, prophecy is to be desired. Proclaiming truth is to be desired greater than tongues. And the last reason why we look at tongues and we look at the the, the ending of these miracle gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians says that tongues will cease. Look at verses 8 through 10 right here. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, as you look, he lists three things. He looks prophesying, knowledge, and tongues. He says two will pass away. Those use the exact same Greek words to pass away. And he says tongues will cease. He uses a completely different Greek word to mention that or to say that. He's making a distinction here. Then he goes on to say that we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Prophecy proclaiming truth and knowledge, understanding truth. There will come a time where we know in part. What that means is we can't fully know and comprehend everything about who God is and how God works and, 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 how God does what God does because you and I are not perfect. We are, are faulty. We are flawed. We are not complete. But there will come a time when we go to heaven and we see God face to face where we, we will be made complete. We will be made whole. We will be perfected. And so the Greek words there means that those will stop by an outside force. Something else will stop those. So those will stop. And when we get to heaven and we see God face to face, We won't need the gift of prophecy or of knowledge anymore because we see God. We know holy now. What we did know in part, now we've seen face to face and we know and we understand because we have been perfected in Jesus Christ and we are now with God in heaven, no longer sin nature, no longer human nature. We are now uh, perfected in His presence. But when it says tongues will cease, that is a completely different Greek word. And it does not mean that it is stopped by an outside force. It just means that it will stop in and of itself. It will stop dead in its tracks. And then if you also look where he says that we prophesy in part and we know in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He doesn't mention tongues there. The reason is is because there will come, or what Paul is saying is there will come a time when tongues will cease as an active gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe that time stopped, that it ceased when the disciples all passed away. When that apostolic age ended with the apostles. So... That's kind of defending cessationism. That's kind of defending uh, why I believe the Bible tells us that those miracle gifts have ended. Now, if you're a continuationist, you believe they keep going, that's fine. We can believe differently on this and still love each other as Christians. We can still fellowship with one another. We can still serve with one another. We can still be part of the same church. That is okay. All right? Now, what I want us to do is I want us to... Well, understand this. When we look at different sides, there's always extreme cases that we can look at. If you're looking at the sides of cessationists, cessationists have a, 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 a flaw or a danger of going too far this way. If you look at continuationists, they have a flaw or a danger of going too far this way. So, as we look at these extremes, what I want us to see is these are the problems that cessationists may face, and these are the, promise, the problems that... Uh, um, continuationists may face. So what are the problems uh, cessationists may face? They can downplay or even fear the Holy Spirit. There are some cessationists that are so uh, fearful of being charismatic, so fearful of uh, kind of crossing that line that they're just almost frozen in their worship. They're frozen almost in their uh, enjoyment of the Christian life because um, they don't want to move too far or or, or too far away from or or too much in the direction of being uh, excited or uh, feeling the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with being excited in worship. There's nothing wrong with being excited about being a Christian and being excited about uh, knowing Jesus. But you go to some churches You've got like Presbyterians over here that are, uh, they call them the frozen chosen sometimes because their worship is very stiff, it's very solemn, it's very, uh, there's no emotion. And then over here you've got the Charismatics that are jumping up and down and dancing in the aisles. Both might be a little bit extreme. Really, we can have a church service where we sing, where we praise God, where we enjoy uh, God, where we let that emotion show. If we love God, if you love someone, emotion's going to be a part of that. And so as Christians, we don't have to fear the Holy Spirit or downplay the Holy Spirit or try to say, you know, well, uh, that wasn't God doing it because there's not a, voice or a verse pointing to it. Uh, you're just making believing or something like that. So we've got to be careful not to go too far uh, to where we downplay the Holy Spirit. Also, they can, they can uh, have the potential of being too pragmatic too pragmatic and not pray for miracles or not recognize miracles at all. Listen to this quote by uh, a guy named Wayne Grudem who is a uh, he wrote a, a systematic theology which is a really big thick book that talks about a lot of just different theological beliefs. He says there is nothing inappropriate in seeking miracles for the proper purposes. For which they are uh, given by God. To confirm the truthfulness of the gospel message. uh, To bring help to those in need. To remove hindrances to people's ministries. And to bring glory to God. So there's nothing wrong with praying that God miraculously heals somebody. There's nothing wrong with praying that God moves in a miraculous way. There's nothing wrong with praying that God does stuff that is outside of what we typically see God do. In the Bible, God continually does miracles. One of the reasons why is to validate messengers, but one of the reasons why God does it is to say, hey, look, I'm God. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how great I am. Look at how powerful I am. So there's nothing wrong. We are never commanded to not pray that God does miraculous things. And so one of the um, potential problems a cessations might have is that they are so um, worried of, of or scared or fearful of the miraculous gifts, that they don't pray for miracles, and then when God does miraculously heal, heal someone, they try to figure out some other way to justify it than saying it was a miracle, because uh, they're so far to one side. Alright, so here's some of the problems that continuation has faced. One, they can be tempted to trust and elevate experience and feelings over God's Word. One thing when you watch uh, Charismatics on TV or you discuss things with the charismatic uh, or someone who is a continuationist, a, a, a far, far-sighted continuationist, is that experience is a, is a big thing. The, the feelings that they feel, the, the rush that they get, the, the new messages that they get from the, their apostles, with their, their speakers. They get these new messages from God. And what they do is they, they tend to elevate this stuff to where it's either on par with or even greater than God's Word. So that if God's Word says one thing, but they feel another way, then that feeling must be that what God is doing in their life. And that feeling must be the way that God is leading them, regardless of what God's Word says. Because there is so much emphasis placed on the miraculous. There is so much emphasis placed on that experience that sometimes the danger can be that experience rises above the authority that God has placed in His Word. Or that it usurps it, or it takes its place, or it at least equals it, all of which is dangerous. Second, they can be tempted to seek after the experiences and gifts that God never commanded and that the Bible never illustrates. Let me, 1 Corinthians 12 11, as we look at those gifts, it ends in verse 11 by saying, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So, what the Bible says is each one is given the gift, not necessarily that they want or that we chase after, but God gifts us how God chooses to gift us. Okay? Well, there are are groups uh, of continuationists, of, of charismatics or whatever you want to call them, who chase after every single gift, especially the more miraculous ones. And really, it leads into some very sketchy, sketchy areas. Let me illustrate. Uh, There's a church called Bethel Church. A lot of the worship music that is out today comes out of Bethel Church. In fact, the the song we sang tonight, Reckless Love, uh, the guy that, that wrote that goes to Bethel Church. Now, a lot of their music is solid music. A lot of their music, there's nothing theologically wrong with their music, with the songs that they sing. If there was, we wouldn't sing it. But in that church, they have given over to such uh, experience-seeking and such miracle-seeking and such seeking after all this stuff over God's Word that, one, they have a, a, a school there, like a seminary, where they train people up and uh, to be pastors that kind of believe what they say you should believe. And... They have encouraged students, this is written and backed up by them, Uh, they have encouraged students to go to local morgues and try to raise the dead. Um, When they're in their services, they they talk about seeing these golden uh, sprinkles falling down from the sky, and that's supposed to be the Spirit of God. There's nothing in God's Word that talks about that. And and there was one service where uh, there were feathers flying out of the air conditioning vents and that was supposed to be a sign from God or a representation of God's Spirit. It's probably a bird got stuck in the air conditioning is what it was. But, but they saw it as a, as a sign of God because they were so desperate to see this miraculous stuff. They were so desperate that they're taking these things that are nowhere mentioned in Scripture, that are nowhere illustrated in Scripture. They're taking these experiences and they're raising them up and saying, this is a move of God, even though there is nothing ever in Scripture to validate the things that they are saying. So there's a temptation to seek after and chase after these events and these gifts that we are never commanded to do so in Scripture. They can be tempted to have a lower view of God's Word and are always looking for new experience to validate or support their faith. So, we've kind of covered that. When you're seeking experiences, uh, one thing has to win out over the other. Either experience or God's Word. Something has to trump the other. And so, because of their view on miracles, uh, a lot of time there's a temptation to lessen their view of God and chase after the miracles. Now, there are two that are very problematic with continuationists or charismatics. One is that some only view salvation to be valid if it is supported by a gift, like speaking in tongues. So there are some who look at salvation, and if you say that, hey, I just got saved. If you did not follow that up by speaking in tongues, or being baptized, having a, a second baptism of the Spirit, then your salvation is questioned in their eyes. If your salvation is not supported by some miraculous gift, speaking in tongues, or some kind of healing, or something then your salvation is called into question. It's a very dangerous belief. It will cause a lot of people to doubt their salvation. It will cause a lot of people to place their faith in something other than Jesus because they're placing their faith in this uh, ecstatic utterance of languages rather than trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there's also large portions of charismatics uh, that are part of oneness theology, which denies the Trinity. People like uh, T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes, he he believes in oneness theology. We've talked about this when we looked at the Trinity. They believe that that the Trinity does not exist, that God was God the Father, then He was God the Son, now He's the Holy Spirit, uh, but He's not all three at one. He is not the triune God that is presented in in the Bible. And as we looked at, when we looked at the Trinity, that really destroys all of our faith. It destroys all of the gospel if the Trinity is not how it is presented in Scripture. So there's a danger that if this is what you believe, believe that there is a large portion of people who believe in oneness theology that believe in this continuation of miracle uh, signs and gifts and wonders uh, that are really into some uh, dangerous, if not heretical, beliefs.